and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, part two of our series on polyvagal theory. We have the honor of talking to Stephen Porges, founder of the polyvagal theory and one of the world's foremost neuroscientists. If you don't know, Stephen is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina, and is a professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as the president of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences. He's a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award, published more than 400, yes, that's 400 peer-reviewed papers across several disciplines, including anesthesiology, biomedical engineering, critical care medicine, exercise physiology, neuroscience, obstetrics, just to name a few. In 1994, we're approaching the 30-year anniversary, he proposed the polyvagal theory. As we talked about on part one with Deb Dana, this is a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral problems and mental health. The theory has led to innovative treatments based on insights in the mechanisms mediating symptoms observed in severe behavioral, psychiatric, and trauma-based disorders. In addition to his numerous books on polyvagal therapy, Dr. Porges is also the creator of a music-based intervention that I'll ask about today. It's called the Safe and Sound Protocol, which is used by therapists to improve social engagement, language processing, and state regulation for a variety of clients, both children, adults, many people on the spectrum. Since Stephen first proposed the theory almost 30 years ago, its basic idea that the level of safety we feel impact our health and happiness and relational health, it's radically shifted how researchers and clinicians approach trauma interventions and therapeutic interactions. Yet despite its wide acceptance, most of the writing on the topic has been obscured behind clinical text and scientific jargon. That's why his latest book, aimed at the general public, called Our Polyvagal World, is really a family affair. It's co-authored with his son, Seth, who has a journalist background. 
it definitively presents how polyvagal theory can be understandable to all and demonstrates how its practical principles are applicable to anyone looking to live their safest, best, and happiest life. What emerges through the pages, as we'll talk about today, is a worldview filled with optimism and hope and an understanding as to why our bodies sometimes act in ways our brains wish they didn't. It's filled with a lot of news you can use, real-world examples, and it's going to change the way you think about your brain. And whether you read it or recommend it to a client, it's going to help you in your psychoeducation and the work that you do. We talk about that and many other things. I can't say enough how much both talking to Deb Dana and Stephen Porges has really expanded not only my awareness of this theory, but they're just really informative, down-to-earth people. They have a special connection and they really have a unique ability to share what they're passionate about. I think that comes through in both our interview in the last episode with Deb and today with Stephen. I hope you enjoy it and we'll be back at the conclusion. For MFTs, addressing mistrust in couples due to alcohol misuse can be one of the greatest challenges. Soberlink is your ally in this journey. Trusted for over a decade, it delivers real-time, discreet proof of sobriety, fostering accountability and healing in your clients. Elevate your practice with a solution that meets the core issues head-on. Make every session more impactful. Request free materials from Soberlink. That's www.soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Immerse yourself, share with clients, and witness transformation. Eli, back with you on the A-A-M-F-T podcast. I am so delighted to be joined today in part two of our polyvagal series with the originator of polyvagal theory, Dr. Stephen Porges. I have been looking forward to talking to him for a long time. Stephen, you'll be happy to know in the over 100 episodes of the podcast now, you were the first non-clinician to be featured on our show. So the, the first question is always, we like to know your origin story. It's 2024 will represent the 30th anniversary of your theory, but I want to know how you got interested in polyvagal theory and I would bring you back probably 40 or 50. I'd bring you back to the young Steve and not even the academic one. I would go back into periods of time, like in high school. Oh, we like hearing about young Steve. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Adolescence is always an interesting period of time. What some people know, because I've shared this, is that I was a classical musician and I played the clarinet and I would practice every day and I'd practice for about an hour. But I was not schooled in understanding what playing the clarinet would do for me. In a sense, by practicing, I was actually doing, developing a practice of pranayama yoga. I was inhaling and exhaling very slowly, holding the tones. I was listening to the tones, controlling the neuromuscular control of the embouchure, the muscles around the mouth, and listening. So what you can start understanding within the lens of the polyvagal theory, I was controlling breath, and I was controlling many of the features of what's described as the social engagement system. It's a system that regulates ingestion, suck, swallow, breathe, and vocalize, but it's really our face, the muscles of our face. So I was developing this whole strategy, literally, of 
using that one hour period of time to, in a sense, regulate my body doing the complexity of adolescence. So it's an interesting reflection back of giving, giving oneself a period of time of, in a sense, regulating in a complex, challenging environment. So put that in background and then move forward several decades or a couple of decades. And I was initially, when I was entered graduate school, extraordinarily interested in this new emerging area called psychophysiology. And that was really what happens to your body when your mind is doing certain things or what does your mind do to your body? So I was very interested in that bi-directionality. And that discipline was called psychophysiology, but it was really a top-down modeling. It didn't have a bottom-up. And so I start really thinking about bidirectionality and neuroregulation. So while initially in grad school, I start to study the neuroregulation of the heart and looking at heart rate patterns during various psychological challenges. And that is now the point of demarcation because it led me into research in individual differences and developmental disabilities, psychiatric disorders, and dropped me in the, in an area of studying high-risk newborns. And this is really where the world opened up to me. Because I had started to develop a new technology or a technology of quantifying heart rate variability. Now, everyone listening thinks that heart rate variability is a generic, everyone understands it, everyone uses the term, they say HRV. In 1969, when I was starting my dissertation and actually published my first paper by then on heart rate variability, I was the loner. I was the first one literally to go out there and quantify it. And so I was trying to now, the next journey after my master's and my dissertation was a journey of a parallel journeys of developing better methods of measuring heart rate variability, but on a quest of understanding what it was. So now move ahead about 20 years. It's the early 1990s. I'm collecting research in a, uh, in obstetrics, really studying babies as they're being born and also studying high risk preterm babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. And I start noticing a phenomenon. I notice that the rhythms in heart rate that we call heart rate variability and the prominent rhythm is called respiratory science arrhythmia, which had been really what I had been studying for decades, that was literally depressed or non-existent in the high-risk preterm baby. And they became very vulnerable for what's called bradycardia. Their heart rates get too slow and they stop breathing. And the babies that do better, the more mature babies, they have the rhythm and the heart rate variability. And I was defining that respiratory science arrhythmia as a measure of the vagal regulation of the heart. And now I was in the conundrum uh, I actually published a paper that this rhythm was protective and it was vagal and we should all be measuring this in the nursery to predict outcomes. And I got a letter from a neonatologist who said when he was in medical school, he learned that the vagus could kill you. And in a sense, what he was saying was that the bradycardias and the apneas, these lethal reactions were also vagal. So now I had a paradox. How could the vagus be this wonderful protecting system and how could it kill you? And that led into an understanding that this was really a polyvagal system. There were two vagal pathways that were traveling in the same nerve, and we were really blinded by this notion of vagal as opposed to where within the vagus, which pathways, where were they coming from in the brainstem? And that led me into a very deep 
dive into the underlying neurophysiology and the evolution of it. And the answer was that the preterm infant didn't have the newer mammalian vagal system and therefore had what would be more like a reptilian defense system of immobilizing. And that's what the bradycardia were. And when the more mature baby had this respiratory size arrhythmia, the newer mammalian vagus was functioning. So that's the pretty long of the short story. And how did we get from there as a neuroscientist to now, as you've distilled down in your new book with your son, which we're going to talk about our polyvagal world, you take something so complex and scientific and you distill it down to almost this intuitive level for the general public, not even a clinician like your colleague, Deb, who've had on the po podcast would write to, how did we get from neonatology and studying premature babies to this global phenomenon of human experience? Yeah, that's fun. So how, literally, how did we get from a description of heart rate variability to a neural mechanism of heart rate variability to polyvagal theory and its application in the world? That is really an interesting journey because when you start realizing this mammalian system of what's happening through development and through evolution, you start seeing a journey in which the vagus or the area in the brainstem from which this newer mammalian vagus comes, it's literally on its own journey from a dorsal back of the brainstem to a front. That journey is a journey of sociality. It's a journey in which the neurons that control the heart are now linked with the neurons that control facial expressivity, vocalization, and even listening. So what it really is, it's telling us that when our bodies are safe, we become spontaneously social. It's our default state is not defense. Our default state is love, compassion, co-regulation, and social nourishment. It's when we move into states of threat that we can't access that. And that's the message of the journey. Yeah, wonderfully said. If you had to, to describe to someone that had never heard the tenets of polyvagal theory, polyvagal one-on-one -on -one in just about four or five minutes. And this would be how a clinician would explain it to a client or even an unfamiliar listener would learn to understand it. Can you distill down the major points of the theory? There's one simple principle. I say that our physiological state, the state that our body is in between the stimulus and the response. So it's what we call in the trade an intervening variable. But what it does is our physiological state mediates our experience. So when our body's in calm state, we tend to see things or process information in a more, let's say, benevolent or gracious way. But if our body is in a state of threat, then we start thinking about, does that impact on me? Does that hurt me? The problem we have, whether we're talking about therapists or basically the consumer out there, the human being, is we have a very poor language to understand our internal states. So we tend to use words like anxiety or stress, but really what they all are, they're the same. They're requiring the lower brain stem structures to recruit defensive programs. And when we recruit defensive programs, we're not a loving species. This is not who we can be. What I'm really saying is that there's nothing wrong with being protecting yourself and being defensive. But your intentional brain, your what you want to be, doesn't have that much control over these foundational survival systems. And this is the real second level take-home point, is if my body goes into a state of threat, 
It's going there because something is threatening to me. Fight, and flight, not, or freeze, right? Worse than that, even. Yeah, freeze and potentially some people will shut down, dissociate, and, and pass out. I mean, you can have the whole extreme. Freeze is, you visualize when you say the word freeze, you see a person standing still, but I see their hands clenched. So I see muscle tension. And when you have that type of tension and you're not moving, that's a hybrid state between a sympathetic fight-flight and a dorsal vagal shutting down. It's a compromise that this brilliant nervous system made because if you pass out, it's again, potentially lethal. You could hurt yourself. The issue is, yeah, we are so used to seeing defense as fight-flight, and it's the world of trauma that has informed me and so many of my colleagues that fight or flight's not our only uh, defense system. We disappear, we shut down, and we become more like a reptile. And I used to say, have you ever been in a pet shop? You see the hamsters and the mice, they're running around, they're active, they're interacting. And then you look at the reptiles, and they're just there. They're literally frozen in space and time. And that is what we do. We start moving down into reptilian, or let's say circuits that we share with reptiles. And even vertebrae that occurred even before reptiles, which are basic survival circuits. And then one final point of that is fight-flight is metabolically costly. There's no way that your body can maintain it. And so when it goes into fight-flight, it's going to start using up resources. And often, when it can no longer handle it, it literally shuts down. You had this great theory, and most of our great theorists and model developers, we know to make it, they had to take a lot of criticism and doubters of their theory. And like I said, a theory that is so intuitive now, it, it, I'm curious how you dealt with early on skeptics or people that challenge the notion of the polyvagal. If you read the polyvagal theory, the criticisms have nothing to do with the theory. They're, they're basically straw men arguments. And I've been totally amazed at why those arguments even get traction, because all you need to do is read the papers, and the papers never make the statements that they say the theory does. So they're a straw man argument is they propose or argue that the theory says something, and they then criticize what they say the theory is stating. But the theory doesn't make those statements. The theory is really very tightly based upon the neurophysiology and the evolution, they're not, in a sense, debatable. So the question criticisms are not disagreements, they're misrepresentations. It doesn't mean that you can't have disagreements. But in general, the criticisms have referenced a couple of people, and those people have misrepresented the theory. The issue is the theory is extraordinarily intuitive. And by being intuitive, that narrative resonates with people who read about the theory. And the people who criticize that are saying the underlying neurophysiology doesn't map into the theory. And that is really, a, in a sense, a fraudulent argument because they've misrepresented the neurophysiology upon which the theory is stating. When you started out, as you tell us in uh, obstetrics, neonatology, you as a neuroscientist, you were speaking to a, a population of, of scientists of, of academics, you in your wildest dreams could probably have never imagined the range and scope of where this would take off. And I know who helped that in the clinical world of, of our audience is Deb Dana. Can you talk a little bit about that partnership and how that has evolved your thinking over the years? Yeah. First of all, Deb's a remarkable human being. She is. And our relationship started in 
the summer of 2013 when she invited me to do a workshop in Maine. And that was the beginning. And then we co-edited a book on clinical applications because she was really intrigued with applying the polyvagal theory in her work. And And at that point, had you had any inclination to want to do that? I had been giving talks in clinical meetings from, I would say, the late 1990s. So yeah, the issue is people were listening to the theory. I had talked in Bessel van der Kolk's meetings and it got a lot of traction because it was providing a narrative for the basically shut down immobilization dissociative response for those who have experienced severe adversity. And prior to the theory, there was no explanation. They would say, you must be in a state of sympathetic fight-flight stress. And the uh, survivors of trauma said, that's not right. You're not describing by feelings. But when they started to hear what the polyvagal theory said, they were the ones that gave it traction as a narrative. So you have two things occurring. One is the theory was being actively used by the late 1990s in the narrative of survivors of trauma. And the therapists were using it to explain what had happened to their clients' uh, physiology so they could see their body's reaction, not with fear, but in a sense, see it as a heroic adaptation to life threat. And they were getting remarkable uh, effects of that. When people start to see their body was doing something good for them, they start to drop the feelings of shame and blame that they were carrying. So that part was going on, but the translation of it into an active therapeutic model was, in a sense, Deb's innovation. And so I sat back and watched and listened and deal with it and how she used the concepts in a therapeutic model. And of course, the model that she uses, where she talks about a story follows state, and this is really one of the basic principles within physiology. This is saying what I opened with, that our physiological state is that intervening variable that determines how we react to the world. And Deb put it into accessible terms, story follows state. And once we understand that from the neurophysiological level, we lose a lot of our sense shame of our body, assuming that our body did not protect us in fight or flight, when in reality, our body may have protected us in shutting down or dissociating or disappearing. Yeah, what is maybe not adaptive to us in our current relationship was life-preserving to us in a previous one, especially if we were undergoing trauma or abuse. It's so powerful. Eli, that's exactly what the survivors have told me. It took them out of feelings of guilt, which then enabled them to process their trauma more effectively. So going back to uh, this issue of polyvagal theory, being explanatory versus being, I would say, insightful into therapy. I always felt that polyvagal theory could sit in background for any form of therapeutic model. And so I was, in a sense, welcomed into the world of somatic experiencing, sensory psychomotor therapy, the world of traumatic releasing exercises, internal family systems is now gravitating yep, to it. Dick, Dick Schwartz is an original mentor of mine and a friend of the show, so certainly it fits nicely. When I think of your model, you're speaking now to an audience of systemic thinkers, and instead of we think of external systems, family members, you're talking of internal system of the autonomic nervous system. You're also talking about the social engagement systems. It works beautifully. I don't know if you've ever considered yourself a systemic thinker, but certainly it fits beautifully with the way 
many of our people in our audience are trained and think about relationships in the world. Even if you move into parts work, whether it's IFS or something else, you normally have a more organized part, a managing part, and you also often have a warrior part or a victim part. And those are the three physiological states. So the parts line up. You can create hybrids and you can repurpose, and that fits very nicely with the theory. And the theory is, in a sense, provides that resource to explain what the body's doing. Got to ask Deb so many things as far as translating this into clinical practice for our audience. One thing I didn't ask her about that I've just been turned on to and actually am going to go through the training because I have heard very good things is this safe and sound protocol that you have. Can you tell us about that sure. for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Okay. The safe and sound protocol will tell you a lot about who I am. I will start off by saying that the safe and sound protocol was designed to be a stealth intervention. It was designed to trigger the nervous system's detection of signals of safety outside of consciousness. So this is why I call neuroception. And it was really modeled on the mother's prosodic voice in calming a baby. And the physiology of this, there's a very deep physiology to the safe and sound protocol. And that is our nervous system is literally tuned to detect certain frequencies if they are melodically presented. And that's what we would call prosody, intonation of voice. And if they are in a certain frequency band and melodic, we have no choice. We have to attend to it. And when we do that, we give up our defenses. And that's what the baby is doing with the melodic voice of a mother. We actually did an experiment this past year. It's published looking at infants following what's called the still face paradigm. Are you familiar with that? I am, but educate our listeners. Okay. It's a simple paradigm developed by a very good friend of mine, Edtronic in which the mother interacts with the baby for about two minutes. Then she freezes her face, expressionless, and stares at the baby for two more minutes. And of course, the baby very rapidly will realize something is amiss and often will reach out to the mother, even at nine months of age or seven months of age, to try to calm the mother. And often will then go into kind of a tantrum. And then after those two minutes of stress, the mother then re-engages. Now, if the mother's voice is very prosodic, and we were able to measure that with uh, a analysis I developed using the acoustic features of the voice, the baby's heart rate dropped more than 10 beats per minute. It calmed down, the distress indices measures dropped down, became calm. The mother was still engaging, but her voice wasn't prosodic, no effect on the infant's behavior or heart rate. And take that as something wired in. This is wired in. And when we have our pets, how do we talk to our dogs and our cats or horses? We use the same sing-songy prosodic voice. The safe and sound protocol deconstructed that as a neural exercise because when you look at individuals, especially those with developmental disabilities like spectrum behaviors, they have a couple features. A flat affect on their face, the intonation of their voice lacks prosody, and they have auditory hypersensitivities while having hyposensitivity to extracting human voice. And by the way, virtually every mental health diagnosis has some of those features, as well as when we age, we start having those same features. And what this system does, it sends an unambiguous signal to the nervous system, literally, that it's safe, the modulated prosodic voice. And that triggers an individual's accessibility and calmness. 
Now, it does that for most people, but if you carry a severe trauma history, so let me put the brakes on this discussion for a moment. When I initially developed it, I was working with autistic kids and kids who were having these behavioral problems, and the effect was really remarkable in terms of reduction of auditory hypersensitivities, improvement of auditory processing, and more spontaneous social behavior. And then as I started to develop this, and it was literally, we're now about 2015, which is when I felt safe enough myself to allow some commercial entity to start selling it. The people within the trauma world who had heard me talk for decades and mentioning uh, this acoustic uh, system wanted to try it on trauma. And that's when we learned an awful lot about the effects of signals of safety to trauma to people with severe adversity. And I would say that uh, many therapists will know this intuitively, and many people who've suffered uh, trauma will know this intuitively. And that is signals of safety do not trigger accessibility. They trigger vulnerability to people with histories. And let me explain what that means. Is the safe and sound protocol was doing what it's supposed to. It triggered a neural system that calmed the body down and literally uh, made them accessible. But if you have a trauma history, the internal bodily feeling, the interoceptive feeling of being accessible is now a signal that you better get out of there. It's a trigger to get your body out of there. And in therapy, people know that people who have trauma often start developing relationships and then they can't tolerate being in proximity. They can't tolerate being available or accessible. A partner cannot tolerate another partner's vulnerability. They have to shift or armor yeah. up or, yeah. so it's, it's directly relevant uh, to a couple and family therapy as well. Yeah. And what you end up, of course, if people can't be accessible, their co-regulation is not really co-regulation of safety. It's often a highly mobilized co-activities like addictive jogging or exercise, as opposed to being safe enough to be immobilized without fear. And so when I first saw this and realized that the people were actually getting triggered, I got extraordinarily upset because I really didn't like developing something that people were experiencing as harmful or at least unpleasant. But the trauma therapist said, don't worry, Steve, literally, this is what they told me. We'll figure it out. And what they did was learn a real secret that other therapies like somatic experiencing had used, titration. They use a little, a few seconds, a minute, and let the body resolve. And if it didn't resolve immediately, they would do it a few days later or a week later until the body became accessible to this. And really what was going on was the nervous system was developing a, a template of predictability predictability is really a metaphor in our nervous system of safety. And in the case of people with adversity history, the feelings of accessibility were now associated with vulnerability and injury. And through titration, that got re remodeled. So this looks like, I imagine, so I have my headphones on much like I do now, and I am getting this kind of audio titration burst. So it was initially developed using vocal music because I wanted to emphasize speech and I wanted to use part of the brain. So it was basically a computer altering of music that you were familiar with. And later, especially since we're dealing with different cultures and we didn't have uh, playlists for all cultures, 
they start to distribute a classical version. And I use the classical version for my own retuning. It, it's calming. For me, it's calming. And what you will notice, the interesting part of this is that the individual who is the, the subject of the intervention may not detect any changes in themselves because there's such fluidity when we move into states of, I would say, social engagement. But the people in the context who share that context with a person will know it really rapidly. They'll see a person who's more resilient, more engaging, more interested in them, and whose faces is going to be more exuberant, more reactive in a positive way. I have this couple where the gentleman becomes highly reactive and really even when his partner makes neutral statements, but she has emotion behind it, he gets triggered and it becomes dysregulated. I imagine using it with someone like this that is, is somewhat short-fused can be helpful in the context of those of us work with couples and families. So this could work with kids and adults. Oh, sure. But I want to talk about the couple for a moment. It's not merely the vocal cues that are disrupting the other person in their setting. It's the facial cues as well. The faces are going to be flat. And so if you had a bad day and you're talking to someone who's close to you, they may get upset with you because they're concerned, why are you mad at them? They may be detecting or interpreting the flatness of your face as if you were angry at them. So it's a miscommunication. But I think when you become polyvagal informed, you become informed that your physiological state is critical in your behavior, and that physiological state is being broadcast in facial expressivity, in gesture, in intonation of voice, and in general muscle tone, people more relaxed. Your bodies pick up these cues of the other being relaxed, the face responding, especially the upper part of the face. And what we see is really, I basically try to encourage people to look at the upper part of the face, especially the muscle that goes around the eye called the uh, opicularis oculi. And that muscle is linked, it's regulated by the facial nerve, but the facial nerve also regulates the major middle ear muscles. So when the you become more exuberant in the upper part of the face, the middle ear muscles are contracting more, which is facilitating the processing of speech. Go back. So Eli, when you went to college, did you ever go to a bar with another person? Of uh, course. Okay. And noisy bar? Yeah. yeah lots of ambient noise. Yeah. yeah. But could you hear every word the person was saying? When you were dialed in and maybe you haven't had too many adult beverages. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the dialing in is what I'm talking about. Yeah. The dialing in is the upper part of the face. It's the muscle around the eye is showing the crinkles, showing interest, showing exuberance. That is also tuning that middle ear muscle, enabling you to extract that information. And what you find out is, of course, when people have suffered from trauma histories, adversity, they don't want to go to noisy places because they can't process what people are saying. They don't want to go to restaurants. So they try to navigate in the space. But when we're, it says, unaffected by that historical events, we're able to really connect, tune in, even in noisy environments. Yes, it's a beautiful explanation of how to dial in. And it's what we think of in couple and family therapy anyway, it's not necessarily what is said, it's how it's said and how you dial into your partner. And so many couples, when they are flooded or triggered, they're not even 
much less looking at the top of the face. They're not even looking their partner in the eye to start with. There's a lot of information in what you said that we're going to unpack what you said. It's not only they're not going to look in the eye, they're going to turn their head away. And I actually coined this term that I called biological rudeness. So if you engage me and I turn my head away, what's your visceral feeling? Disrespected, unacknowledged. Yeah, you, you easily get angry. You feel dismissed. So I used to use the, the model of the senior professor walking down the hall reading a book and some young assistant professor or grad student wanting to engage and impress the senior professor. And the senior pr- puts his hand out and the professor keeps walking. And the interpretation that people would make in an academic setting was, I'm not important enough. But that's not the right interpretation. The right interpretation was the person really was not accessible. They were in a physiological state that enabled them literally to dissociate from other. And in an academic world, there's certain advantages to being in that state. You can work harder. You're not distracted. Yeah. Again, as we said, what is adaptive in one domain in an interpersonal relationship becomes maladaptive. Okay. I would be remiss then if I didn't ask because the family therapist to me knows you have two boys. One, you co-authored this book, which I think is just very special. And that's Seth, who is a journalist slash filmmaker. And then I think you have another son who is a neuroscientist, right? So I guess this has become a family affair. And one of the things that our listeners, uh, when they pick up our polyvagal world, they'll know the challenge of your world. You can talk and speak to this very scientific audience. You're obviously a brilliant man, but with the help of your sons, now you've distilled this down. Literally anyone could pick this up and the intuitive nature of the polyvagal theory comes through. It's the way it was written. As a writer myself, whenever I see something, there's clearly two voices there, but I, it, it's merged. You're spanning several generations, but it, it is written so accessible. So I guess that's a Just a segue into just talk about your boys and how this has become a family affair and then how you decided to write this book with Seth. You left one member out. Woman behind the man. Yeah. My wife, Sue, is Sue Carter, the discoverer of the relationship between oxytocin and social behavior. So she plays an important role. You might have heard of the Prairie Vol model. Yes. She created that. That's her work. And she takes credit for bringing me into the world of social behavior. And not dealing mainly with the psychophysiology had nothing to do with social behavior. It had to do with responses to stimulate more cognitively oriented. And she was always pushing social behavior. So we've had an interesting dialogue. And what I used to say is that during the first 20 years of our marriage, we had independent research careers. And then we got reacquainted in the brainstem. And I mean that because the areas that controlled the neuropeptides of oxytocin vasopressin overlap with the areas that regulate the, the autonomic nervous system. So also, when like, I think of oxytocin, I think of connection. I think yeah. of closeness, warmth. They go hand in hand. Wow. Yeah, but what's interesting is that oxytocin receptors literally are all over the dorsal vagus, and that is what we think of as a shutting down response. But really what it does is it keeps the body from shutting down and enabling accessibility and intimacy. So it's immobilization without fear is oxytocin in dorsal vagus. So it it creates this beautiful bit that we don't need to be always aware of the person's face and their voice. We're just comfortable being with them. Kind of a a relaxed immobilization, if you will. Yeah. I think I used to say that is the goal of our civilization is to be immobilized without fear, to give up our defenses. Now let's put the family together. So 
The older son, Eric, is 43, and he's a tenured professor at University of Florida in basically health psychology and neuroscience. But what you may not know is Eric is the inventor of a vagal nerve stimulator, as well as an imager and has done neuropeptides with Sue. So Eric basically inherited the family business and then did more with it. And with both of your work? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so he is actually, he's a co-inventor with two colleagues of his who happen to have worked in my lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago when I was in the medical school there. So two of his colleagues were actually in my lab. One was a postdoc, one was an engineer. And they're both faculty now at the University of Florida, best friends with Eric, collaborators, and literally created a, a company that uh, is developing a closed-loop vagal nerve stimulator measuring vagal regulation of the heart as part of the feedback system. So they're doing really great on that level. And so people say, who did you write the book with? They were assuming it was with Eric. I said, no, I didn't write it with my scientist son. I wrote it with my communicating son, (laughs) Seth. And the beauty of writing it with Seth, okay, you want the personal experience. The personal experience was, where did he get the knowledge? He wasn't in my lab. No, where did he get the information? So he basically did most of the writing and most of the organization. And of course, as the dad and the polyvagal originator, I would edit. And then he would explain to me that it was too dense to pack and went back to what he said. But here, for me, the most interesting part was I would have the text read to me with an audio playback app And that's how I like to literally proofread because I'm better detecting grammar with it being spoken versus reading it. And I didn't hear his voice. I heard my voice. And I just, I couldn't believe this, that sounded like me, felt like me, but it was also other people could read it and they weren't encumbered in the way that they would have been if I had written it. That must have been an amazing experience. What did you learn from your son through that experience? Because we think of you as the master and him as the editing your voice down, making it palatable for the masses. But obviously you had already imprinted a lot on him just by being you and living the theory and, and being his dad. He picked up on a lot. What did you learn from Seth? I learned that he had extracted the principles in a way that could be described and To me, that okay, so I'm an academic by training and by nature, but there's another part of me which the clinical world knows. They say, he's a researcher, but he has a heart of a therapist. Okay, so that's who I really am. I like people. I want to be helpful. And being a scientist is a little bit constraining. So communication is really the drawback for most scientists. They don't know how to reach people because they're busy in the ideas. It's like they're focused on the ideas and not the impact of the ideas on others. But I kind of bridge these things. And for me, what Seth taught me was that he's an expert in knowing the language that other people can accept. Now, I might be able to get on stage and talk and relate, but I don't write that way. And it's not me to write that way. It's too many decades of writing science papers and chapters and journal articles. But Seth has a history of writing magazine articles and making movies. So his voice, his ability to communicate, I was in awe of it. Uh, The real thing I was in awe of wasn't that he could take the ideas, 
is that the ideas were already in his mind. He already had it. And to me, that, to me, that's, I just don't get it. We have our children and they live their lives. You support their lives. And it was just literally difficult for me to understand where the information came from that he was able to access in writing. So when, when this, this started when you were a little boy doing breathing exercises to be a classically trained musician and it's evolved to this, but this has been your life. So I imagine that just came out of you when you asked him that question, how did you, I didn't tell you this explicitly. How did you have this understanding of it? What did he say? He said it just permeated our relationship and our home and that it was just osmosis. The word he used was osmosis. Yeah, it was like he lived it. So it wasn't hard, which was an interesting way of saying it. You know, it's like he, he had the understanding of it and the insights. He's a very bright guy, but brightness isn't everything in life. You have to have this ability to absorb other people's viewpoints. It's remarkable what he did. And I look, I'm so pleased and so proud of what he's done. Because for me, if we want to look, I, I use the term looking at life through the rearview mirror. And one of the things that I wanted to, my bucket list was really to write a book that people could understand that it was accessible to others. It has certainly done that. It's probably my favorite of anything you've written. And it's one that I give to clients. I give to my students and it's this beautiful collaboration between father and son. So the family therapist me would be remiss if I didn't ask. So you and Eric had this natural connection as neuroscientists. Now you and Seth have this bond. What does Eric think of this collaboration between you and Seth? I think Eric is really fine with it because Eric's on the journey of, I would say, a traditional academic and writing popular books is not really the best thing you do when you're mid-career. So Eric's very conscious of the world he's in, grant writing, and basically he knows where he is. Now, it doesn't mean that's where he's going to be in 10 years. The interesting part is my wife, Sue's response, and this is what she wants. She wants Seth to write a book with her and me. She, it's really going to be the linkage between oxytocin and polyvagal theory. And she wants Seth to do that because he could, and he would be the only one that could. What a great next chapter for this family legacy. I mean, it goes together like peanut butter and jelly. So that's certainly something when you all do that, uh, the next time we do this, we'll have uh, all three of you on or all four of you on. But I, I could talk to you for another hour. You're so generous of your time. And I think this is Sometimes a challenging question to pioneers and innovators such as yourself, but you think, and I'm not going to give away your age, but it is amazing listening to you. One of the commonalities, I'm a common factors researcher looking for what makes uh, these model developers so passionate years after they've been doing the work. And as you talk about little Steven going back to being classically trained, I can visualize that and that you are you know, still as passionate about what you're doing and now what has become a, a family business is it's the legacy question. How do you want to be remembered in the field? I remember when I resigned from the University of Maryland to take a job at the University of Illinois Medical School, and I had been chairman. And one of my colleagues didn't want me, I wanted to step down immediately so they had some transition. And he looked at me, he says, you can't do that. I said, why? He said, legacy. And the issue is, it doesn't matter. And I think the legacy that, that I really want people to understand is our responsibility as humans is to make the world a safer place for each of us. And what I like, I use terms like make it safe enough. My goal is to 
enable people to be safe enough to be who they really are. And think about that. We can't be who we really are because if we're not safe, we're shaping our behavior based on that outside of us, external signals. I think I heard you say once, and I wrote this down, the greatest gift that we can give is our own accessibility. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I finally came down to what it was that was so important. And this was an interesting journey for me because I started to understand that my presence in other people's lives was important for them, not necessarily important for me, uh, but it was what I could give to them. So a hug, a selfie became important in their life, a special moment, enabled them to feel special for that moment. And it's to me, it was really a beautiful experience for me because what they were doing is they were becoming accessible to me. They were sharing that moment with me and they made me feel connected with them. And it was basically, it's a beautiful feeling. And this was not the feeling that a senior professor normally has. The senior professor normally has barriers and boundaries uh, protecting who that person is. And that's not a good goal in life. It's like being a celebrity. Celebrity is not a good life because your accessibility is taken from you. And accessibility is the gift. And I think that's a reasonable thing to leave behind is that we need to become safe enough to be who we are because when we're safe enough to be who we are, we're able to be accessible to others. And that forms the basis of trust and social nourishment upon which our society really needs. It's we're all on that quest to feel safe with others, especially in the contemporary world where we're being bombarded with signals that are not really valid signals of evaluation. I don't think I could say any better than that. I thank you again for your time and the gift of your accessibility, your humanity, and doesn't matter how scholarly you are, that you're a, a neuroscientist. I think your relatability, your humanity came through today as much does the intuitive level of the polyvagal theory. And I can't recommend enough uh, the work you and Seth have done, uh, both for uh, our listeners of therapists out there and the general public, their clients, and even people that have never considered therapy. It's really a, a great work. And I can't wait to see the collaboration with your wife and your son, what that looks like. But uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being a part of our show. You're quite welcome, Eli. Working as an independent marriage and family therapist can be very rewarding. But working outside of the typical W-2 employee structure can be a difficult transition for many of us. That's where a company like Opolis comes in. Opolis is helping independent therapists focused on what they do best. While Opolis manages the back end. Opolis leverages group buying power, helping you save up to 50% on premium healthcare options through Cigna. Through their platform, you can receive bi-monthly pay stubs, annual W-2s, and compliant tax withholding and remittance. Learn more at Opolis. That's O-P-O-L-I-S dot co slash therapist. Opolis dot co slash therapist. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close part two of our polyvagal series. Thank you, Stephen. That was a great interview. 
Thank you for being part of the AMFT podcast. You can find out all you need to know about Stephen. Go to stephenporges.com where you will see a lot of media. You can find about all of his publications. Figure out the key principles and resources associated with polyvagal theory, including information about his new book, Our Polyvagal World, we talked about with his son, Seth. You also want to check out the polyvagalinstitute.org where there's lots of courses and e-learning and event details like the recent legacy talks that we talked about on the last episode that Stephen and Deb Dana did virtually and face-to-face in Stephen's new home of Atlanta Beach, Florida. Latest on polyvagal theory at the polyvagalinstitute.org. Also, that safe and sound protocol we mentioned as far as how you get certified and subscriptions for you to use and use with your clients, that's at integratedlistening.com if you want to check out more about the safe and sound. Want to know what's going on with me? Check out elicaram.com where you can find out about online trainings that I do, books that I've written, including It's test-taking season for many of our young professionals looking to be licensed. You can check out the Marriage and Family Therapy National Exam. Your study guide for success works as like a model's text and a review for the exam. That's from Springer Press that I've really been excited to partner with. It's a great resource as you get ready to prepare for the exam. It's got 360 questions, including a full-length mock exam. Got lots of proven strategies and tips for test taking success. It's organized to correspond to the six domains of the exam, reflecting the most recent structure of the exam. There's a great glossary there. And Exam Prep Connect, which is Springer's digital platform that guides you in addition to the print book. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We thank you for your continued support. It is really you, the listener, that drive our show. And if you're new to the show and just check this out for this two-part series on polyvagal theory and now have caught the systemic bug, so to speak, please remember we have five seasons worth of shows that explore cutting-edge clinical topics that relation-based therapists care about, feature unique conversations with established experts and pioneers like Stephen Porges. You can subscribe and listen wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm parceled to iTunes and Spotify. We'd love a star rating and a review to help us rise through the ranks of the mental health podcast. Please drop me a line. Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com Karam.com. Until next time, my friends, stay safe and always stay systemic. Stay systemic.